0: This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. Hmm. Hmm. I am Ben Korsha.
1: And I'm Dr. Daphne Yassobo-Barbeau. We are neonatal intensive care physicians.
0: Okay, welcome to Journal Club, Daphna. How are you?
1: Uh, I'm doing great. I, I'm, I didn't have quite the busy week that you did, and I am thrilled. It's a it's a good month uh, for learning about kangaroo care uh, in the in in papers so i'm thrilled you know it's near and near you're to my heart you're jumping
0: right into it you're not wasting any time
1: well i'm excited okay
0: <laughs> okay um well i want to open the podcast by again thanking all the people who are listening and downloading we're getting tremendous feedback it's it's really great to see a community building around the podcast we're very thankful and uh yes uh thank you for all the support so Without further ado, I'm going to start right away with with this article that came out in New England uh, Journal of Medicine. Um, this this paper that Daphna referred to called "Immediate Kangaroo Mother Care and Survival of Infants with Low Birth Weight." Um, it was it was published on May 27th of this year, obviously in the New England, and it was done. I mean the it was a study group called the WHO Immediate Kangaroo Mother Care Study Group, and Basically the, the basics of the article are that the group, it tried to evaluate the safety and efficacy of continuous kangaroo mother care initiated immediately after birth in infants with birth weight one to 1.8 kilos. And this included five tertiary level hospitals in Africa, in, in Ghana, sorry, India, Malawi, Nigeria, and Tanzania. And, um, basically they looked at, uh, several, um, outcomes, um, Mortality from enrollment to 28 days, mortality from enrollment to 72 hours, and a long list of secondary outcomes. The main findings of the um, articles are that for these infants who were born uh, between 1 and 1. 1.8 kilos who received immediate kangaroo care, they had lower mortality at 28 days than those who received conventional care with kangaroo mother care initiated after civilization. And, um, and so that was... Um, and so, and they wrote that the, 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 the between group differences favoring immediate kangaroo care, mother, or mother care at 72 hours was not really significant. So at 28 days really was when they found some significant outcomes. And I thought that was huge. So Daphna, what did you uh, tell us a little bit about the paper and what your thoughts were on that study?
1: Well, I think it's great news, especially for, uh, resource poor, um, communities, definitely. But I think it would be remiss to say that we can't take more from this paper here, you know, in the United States in uh, well-developed, resource-rich uh, um, units either. Um, obviously, these aren't our smallest babies, right? One, one to one point eight kilos. Um, but those are babies who, in general, even in the United States, are not getting a lot of kangaroo care. Um, and so, I, I think that we can learn a lot from this. Uh, learn a lot about, you know, the safety. Um, and what was really interesting, I, I want to bring your attention to is that so the control group was about one and a half hours a day, but the median daily duration in the um in the kangaroo care group was about 17 hours. So average of 13 to 19 hours. And that is just tremendous. Um and uh I don't think I've ever seen that <laughs> here in the mm-hmm. States. So um you know obviously Uh, our societal constructs are a little bit different. Uh, Mommies are having to go back to work. They can't spend, you know, 17, 20 hours in the unit every day. But the fact of the matter is uh, that kangaroo care is safe and um, that I think it will continue, we will continue to learn that it's going to change outcomes that we haven't even been been looking at. And so it's, you know, just like the medications we study, we we really have to give it its its due diligence, um, and and um, and teach parents uh, about the benefits, and and let let them decide how much they're able to do or not to do. But um, we definitely have to be offering.
0: Yeah, this was this was a very interesting paper. I think you said a lot of interesting things about number one, the babies were not particularly small. I mean, they were uh, the median um, the median uh, gestational age was thirty three weeks. And again, if you look at practically speaking, the, the numbers, obviously, this is published in New England, so obviously the numbers are perfect. There's like 1,600 babies in the intervention arm, 1,600 babies in the control arm. Mm-hmm. And But when you look at the outcomes, obviously, you say, well, that doesn't really translate into at least what we're seeing in the US or you would say maybe in Europe, where the rates of, of mortality for sepsis are like 15%, 20%. Mm-hmm. And these are high numbers. But then, like you said, th- this is not really meant to portray uh, outcomes in high resources setting, but in low resource environments, and you see that kangaroo care did make a difference in reducing mortality at 28 days. The big question is, what do we take away from this paper? And I've been scouring the the article, saying, so what do I take away from this article to the bedside, and and how do we apply this in in the US? This is where we practice. So let's just let's just call it what it is. And there's different things that I wanted to get your opinion on, um, because number one, I don't know if you picked up on that in the article, but in the procedures section of the article, they mentioned how they got consent, right? And mm-hmm. they spoke to those mothers about kangaroo care prenatally. And I thought that was like, oh, that's interesting. I did so many prenatal consults. I have never mentioned about how we're going to do kangaroo care if the baby is born. Never, never thought about that. And, and
1: you know... You know, I love the prenatal consult. It's one of my favorite parts of the job. And you know that I love kangaroo care, but I have never spoken about kangaroo care in the prenatal consult. And you know it I'm always reminded because almost no matter what is happening with the baby after delivery, a parent's first question Or the question that they want to ask us and they don't ask us is, when do I get to hold my baby? And they're Mm -hmm. just waiting for us to to tell them. And so this is just a great reminder, especially for, I think, people who, you know, poo-poo the utility of care.
0: (laughs) No, and and I think, number one, this is something that is going to have to be, like, I think this paper is bringing this to the forefront. This is a major issue. It needs to be brought up very early on before delivery. Number two, you're gonna face the usual uh, delayed cord clamping, cord milking situation where it's like, is it my job? Is it the how, how are we gonna communicate with our obstetricians to make sure that this can happen? Well, the link here is the mother. If the mother tells their OBs, I'm expecting to do kangaroo care right after delivery, then they can effectuate change, I think, in the delivery suite so that this can be done. And so to me, I think bringing that up at the, at the uh, prenatal consult is potentially is a game changer.
1: Yeah. And we had another article, you know, just last month, six weeks ago about, um, and I don't have it here. We can maybe link it some other, you know, in the show notes, but um, about fathers doing kangaroo care in the delivery room um, and how that uh, changed the kind of short uh, term outcomes. And so we just, I, I'm hoping that the, the, the community will be asking for it because, um, it's something that we, we can't ignore anymore.
0: Yeah. And, and the other thing that was very interesting to me is that neonatology sometimes has some very wishy-washy papers, right? About, ah, this is better for the baby. And you're like, I don't really know, but this paper somehow was able to take a practice which feels very ancient and very authentic and show objectively the medical benefits of it. I thought that was fascinating to objectively put in concrete term. Yes, mortality is going down if you increase the time exposure uh, to kangaroo care. And you look at these numbers, they're pretty impressive. Um, In their primary outcome, death between enrollment and 28 days, there was uh, in the kangaroo care group, 12% mortality versus 16% in the control group with a p-value difference of 0.001 and even at 72 hours even though they didn't really mention it as a as a statistically significant difference because it is not but it was still pretty much lower 4.6% versus 5.8% with a p value of .09 so i mean this is this is if this had if this had this is what i was this is how i interpret this paper i almost replaced in my head kangaroo care with medication x and you think if this was medication x that they said hey mortality rate have gone down by 5% between the two groups, we would all be using it. I mean, look at vitamin A and all that stuff. And I am, I am hopeful that people will take this as seriously as they would if it was a medication that they could just order in the computer.
1: Yeah. And, um, the, the interesting thing right about studying kangaroo care is, um, can we ethically withhold it anymore? And in fact, this study, their data and safety monitoring, uh, shut down the study because of the reduced mortality. And they they said, we can't, we can't randomize babies to not get kangaroo care. So um, I think the studies ethically will have to, you know, be observational, but I think there's still plenty of of data we can collect. I do also think this is not a political podcast, but, uh, you know, if we are really serious about integrating kangaroo care into neonatal care, then, you know, um, we've got to support moms and there are a number of ways that we can, we could do that, uh, that we, you know, as neonatologists have to advocate for, because I think it changes outcomes in babies. So.
0: Yeah. And, and you, um, and, and I think it's also the issue with, with neonatology sometimes is that we tend to think of all deliveries as being the same. Mm. And this article by being a bit selective in the population that they were using made a very interesting point because I do, I don't think that even for babies that are born at 30 weeks or below, be doing immediate kangaroo care, is it, is it feasible? Probably not, if you have to, to just intervene. But it opens the door to, I would say, I was thinking in my head backwards. I was saying, all right, let me see. Full term, I could expect a baby to be doing kangaroo care immediately after birth. And I started going back week by week and thinking, at what point do I say, no, I, I kind of want to assess this baby first. Mm-hmm. And I was able to go at least... Philosophically, to like 32 weeks, I would say, you know what? Up to 32 weeks, I can let the baby be on the mother, and if if I can visually see that the baby is breathing okay, and that I can put a pulse ox on the baby, make sure that the heart rate and the oxygen saturation is good, this is very very feasible. Um, and so, like you said, I think it's it's putting a little bit of a, of a of an incentive on the clinicians as to what is your argument for not doing it. Um, and so, I think this was this was a, this article is a big deal.
1: Well, the other thing that they didn't discuss um, in in this study is, so what happened the rest of the 28 days, right? Were those moms doing more kangaroo care um, during that time period? And so uh, I think we're going to find that immediately is beneficial, but even if it's not immediate, then we just, we have to work on, on getting, getting babies to do skin to skin whenever we have the opportunity, so. I loved it. Okay.
0: Yeah, that was good. Now, um, yeah, it, 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 it was one of these articles that you, you get the feed that it's, it's published and it blows you away that, oh my God, this, this is really significant. Let's move on to. Well, we uh-huh. know
1: that, uh, kangaroo care certainly helps with breast milk production and we have no shortage of breast milk articles.
0: That's right. Month. So let's go to the journal of perinatology. And, uh, this month, um, this month's edition is interesting. It has a lot of different niche uh, and different pockets of topics that they're that they're dealing with. Um so what what article do you want to start with?
1: Um I liked this uh article influence of different breast expression techniques on human colostrum macronutrient, macronutrient concentrations. Um lead Arthur Camilo Barros uh, Malgaco da Silva. I probably butchered that. But um <sighs> They looked at a convenient sample of mothers that delivered greater than 36 weeks um, in two separate hospitals in um, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and they collected paired samples of milk. Um, so moms have a right breast and the left breast for, for the most part. And so they were randomly allocated uh, to one breast with uh, a- electric pump and one breast with hand expression. Um, and that they evaluated these paired samples. Um, samples. And so they had almost 100 mothers each providing uh, two of these samples. And they showed that the concentrations of protein and carbohydrate did not vary between samples, but that there was a statistically significant increase in lipid and caloric content in samples collected by manual expression. And so, you know, this was a, this was a small study. Uh, the changes are, um Small, but but the lipid concentration was 0.5 grams per deciliter, and so when we think about how often we are adding additional additives to breast milk in the in the NICU, um, uh, I think there we really have to think about how we can optimize the milk that we're already getting, um, and the lacto you know engineering that we can do to milk to to optimize it without having to add stuff that's not coming from human moms. Um, So I thought it was interesting. I think that this is going to open up, I'm hopeful that it will open up more studies um, looking looking at things like this.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't know what to make of this because it's very interesting in the context of the other articles that we're going to talk about when, uh, in terms of the use of different equipment and it's the relationship between human milk and, and plastics and all that stuff. But I mean, is it is it practical to compare hand expression versus electric pump and how I'm wondering how do we how would how would we take that to the bedside?
1: Well, so I don't have all the literature in front of me, but we know that manual expression is much more effective and efficient in the first few days of life, um, and I think that's something we can readily bring to the bedside. And you know, the first thing they wheel into mommy's rooms are, are hand pumps. I mean, our mm-hmm. um, electric, electric pumps. And so that's something we can do right out the gate: is um, optimize colostrum by teaching hand expression, which is more work takes. Um, a little bit more hand holding lack of a better term um, <laughs> <laughs> breast breast holding sometimes and 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 it's hard, right It's a lot of work. it's a burden right. on our mother baby nurses, but um the moms who are really dedicated to providing milk, we can teach them to do this. we can show them the videos online to do it, and they can do it, and mm-hmm. we know that it, especially in the preterm the extremely preterm baby that, um, lipid, uh, exposure in the, or lack of lipid exposure in the first uh, few days takes them a long time to catch up. And so for me, I think that's something I I can be more forceful about hand expression, especially in the first few days when I know that it's going to optimize milk output to begin with.
0: Okay. I I, I can buy that. that. Yeah, absolutely. I think, no, because I mean, it makes it sound like, so does that mean that I'm going to have to hand express for the, (laughs) for six months?
1: Yeah, We can't, I I mean, there are, there's a rare mom who can do (laughs) exclusively hand expression and just exclusive pumping is, is, is a a task in and of itself. But I think, um, in those first few days, and again, I hope it's going to open the floodgates to more, um, Uh, literature about how we can optimize uh, the milk we give
0: so following up there there was is it okay if we continue on these two articles um okay so the first one still in the journal of perinatology is called migration of cyclohexanon and 335 trimethyl cyclohexanon from a neonatal enteral feeding system into human milk the first author (laughs) <laughs> listen it it almost scared me away, and I was very happy that i I had to read it, so I read it and and I even wrote next to it, wow, because i it it just i think to me that was a very important paper. First author is Prita Prazad, and this is uh, from a group out of chicago um and basically what they're talking about, and the introduction is a bit long, I think, because it's, it's, it's needed to be long. It talks about the VOCs, the Volatile organi- Organic Compounds. <clears throat> and in the introduction, they talk about uh, some of the, the nauseous effects that VOCs have and how the, um, the Environmental Protection Agency has identified them as public health concerns due to their ubiquity, and how exposure to volatile organic compounds um, have been during pregnancy associated with reduced birth weights, postnatal growth, and that children who are exposed to higher concentration of VOCs are at high risk of developing asthma, atopic dermatitis. So, I mean, I I am not very well versed into the the negative effects of VOCs, but I had heard of them. Mm -hmm. And... In this study, what they did is that they took unfortified human milk samples and they were infused through an enteral feeding system with varying duration of infusions, incubator temperature, and pre-infusion tube priming. And they were, um, and they had sort of an analyzer that was used to identify the VOC profile of the milk pre and post-infusion. And They looked at two of those volatile compounds. One of them is cyclohexanon, and the other one is 335-trimethylcyclohexanon. And they found that it accumulated significantly in milk samples post-infusion. Duration of infusion had a significant effect on VOC accumulation. And accumulation patterns of cyclohexanon and 335-tmc differed significantly based on milk type. So they looked at the different milk type. They looked at donor milk versus mother's human milk. And then they looked at the duration of infusion. And they found that even in in um, maternal milk there was a significant accumulation um they did it in in three phases they looked at baseline thirty minutes and four hours um for donor milk it accumulated almost on a on a dose sort of incrementally uh with time and for maternal milk they found a really a big spike at thirty minutes and it was still elevated at four hours but not as much so that was fascinating to me that yeah. we, we could, we could potentially like the pump and the, and the, and, and the tubing is not something I had ever thought of as potentially being harmful to, to the babies. And this gave me a pause for, for thought. Should I, should we go into this or should I just talk about the other article that's on the same topic?
1: No, I, I think, I think you're right. I think it's. Super interesting. And like you said, we have another article to discuss about uh, timing. Um, But I I think it should give us pause. I think we should work to find what is the optimal uh, timing for, you know, duration of feeds. Um, Because it, it does matter. It's not a one time thing. It's, it's like, you know how many X-rays does one baby get, and so every feed is an exposure. Um, and so I, I think that's how we have to have to think about it. The other thing that I'll take away, and I think we should all take away, is that um, I loved how the study compared momzo milk and donor milk. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not, I'm not sure why they're different here. <laughs> I'm really not but they are. Um, and it's just a good reminder that we can't, uh, you know, offer donor milk as an equivalent to mom's own milk. Uh, you know, we really have to appreciate and thank moms for the milk that they bring. We have to encourage them that, that their milk um, is, is superior to, to donor milk. And if we can get it and if we can support mommies um, to bring in their own milk that, you know, it, it makes a difference
0: yeah I think I think as donor milk becomes more and more available, you tend to mm-hmm. put them on the same mm-hmm. footing as mother's milk and and they really aren't I mean they're processed, and mm-hmm. does that create a bit more stickiness for these sort of right. organic compounds to be sort of grabbed and attached to the milk? I'm not sure the other article which Talks about something similar is uh, called changes in micro and macronutrients of human milk after bolus feeding. A simulation study. Uh, the first author is Inbal Zomerfreund from uh, the University of Tel Aviv. And what they did is that they were trying to evaluate possible changes in macronutrients and energy content of human milk after transfer through a feeding tube by means of simulation of human milk delivery through an NG tube. What that means is that they took uh, samples of, of human milk and they measured uh, the the levels and concentrations of macronutrients. Another portion of it was put through the pump and was analyzed after going through the pump to see if there were any changes from the same sample in terms of uh, protein, fat, and so on. And um, they, they followed a pretty standard protocol where the, the milk was sort of Collected, thaw, uh, frozen, thawed, and and just a bit like what we do to uh, to milk in the NICU, <clears throat> they were able to perform eighty measurements. And what they found was was quite um, was quite striking. Striking. Um, the mean fat concentration decreased by two point one percent after being infused through the pump. The mean carbohydrate concentration decreased by about three percent, and the total energy content decreased by about one point five percent the protein content remained relatively stable. And so th- that was another article that mm-hmm. is looking at some things from a different angle. The other article from Chicago looked at the effects of the pump and the equipment on the milk itself. And this looked at how the milk is being changed by going through the pump. So I thought they were so complementary. And, um, and and yeah, I'm curious to see what 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 you think about that one as well.
1: Yeah, I mean that's something we know, right? We know that some nutrients get lost, get stuck in in the in the tubing, but it's nice to know how much and you can imagine over time that that is impactful. And the I would have liked to have seen them uh, vary the time frame. That's what I would have liked to see and I hope we see that. <laughs> so that way, that way, maybe we can pick an optimal measurement and it may not work an optimal time for feeding. And it may yeah. not work for every, I mean, we know the physiologic timeframes, but that's not always possible, right? In our, especially our extremely low birth weight babies, it's not always possible in our hypoglycemic babies. And so we may not be able to do it every time. Um, but it's, it's nice to have the data and we can at least target an optimal time frame.
0: It made me think of what we spoke about with Matt Schuber last week, where we talked about loss aversion, and I, I connected with that idea of sometimes you have a baby that is feeding um, NG or OG, and it's time to start um, oral assessment, oral feeds, and we maybe loss we have some loss aversion of saying I don't want to mess this thing up. This baby is has is uh, pick line is out, TPN is off, and and tolerating enteral feeds. I don't want to start pushing this baby to feed by mouth quickly and then cause some intestinal intolerance and then have to put the baby in PO. Uh, you're afraid of these things. And you tolerate then going slower on the uh, advancement of oral feeds because you feel safe that being being fed uh, through NG over the pump is very, very safe. Mm-hmm. But these articles are now showing you not only are you losing some of the nutritive aspects of your milk, but you maybe also be delivering toxic compounds to the baby because you're still using the pump, so like you said, I think the pump is necessary, and you use it when you have to. But I guess it's it's now it's it's gonna be. Are we gonna start treating them like central lines? You know, saying, "Well, do we need that tube in yeah. today?" And that's right. That's
1: well, and really, it makes you think about duodenal feedings uh, yes. totally differently, and you know, shortening our trials of of duodenal feeds. So,
0: and this is and this is plastic in the NICU. So it's it sort of, my mind exploded a little bit because I'm like, what about the pick lines? What about the umbilical lines? Mm. What about all the other things that we expose babies to? It just felt very overwhelming. Mm. Um, and, and I mean, I think de-escalation of medical care has to be taken extremely seriously and we have to do it as, as fast as possible because again, there's, it's not 100% safe mm-hmm. to have central lines as we know, but all these, all these foreign material have have their take they take they take their toll on the baby.
1: Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um we have some other breastfeeding papers here, also in the mm-hmm. journal of perinatology. Um let's see. There, we have this maternal dietary fat intake during pregnancy and newborn body composition. Um, Lead author Natalie uh, A. Damon. Um, They looked at 185 dyads of mothers of singleton pregnancies, and they really looked at what was mom eating during pregnancy Um, and the postnatal, obviously, birth weight, percent body fat, um, abdominal circumference, and the ponderal index. so that was interesting because I think that we're not we're not using a lot of markers in neonates um, that we might use in older children or adults um, in terms of kind of body composition. We don't have really good um, normative values for those things either, um, but it's interesting to evaluate, um, especially since we know we're learning that so much about our neonatal uh body composition food intake nutrition um impacts our out our, our adult um, body and so uh, they looked at uh, these groups of moms um and they wanted to see did the maternal fat intake uh, during pregnancy correlate with newborn body fat, and they anticipated that it would. Um, Just for reference, the moms had a pre-pregnancy BMI on average of about 27, uh, gestational diabetes rates of about 9%, um, so you can uh, see if that fits your your population. Um, And the maternal fat intake did demonstrate significant correlation with newborn percent body fat. Um, when strat- stratified by sex, it actually held true for males, but not for females. Um, and then they actually looked at when was when were when was the fat exposure, so to speak. So the second trimester saturated fat and unsaturated fat intake um, correlated significantly with infant ad- uh, adiposity. And so they're just highlighting that there's a probably, a, you know, a sensitivity to maternal fat intake during the whole pregnancy, but particularly in the second trimester. And and, and
0: that's I thought that's what was going to be picked up by some type – I thought some newspaper was going to pick up on that and say, you know, you can eat fat as much as you want during the first trimester. Just watch second trimester I and know. third trimester.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I can't imagine asking moms to do any – more things differently during pregnancy. You know, uh, there's really a lot to think about during pregnancy, and it can sometimes be overwhelming. Um, but it's interesting to think about when we look at, you know, childhood um, disease and um, a so, reminder so th- that we have to optimize maternal nutrition. You know, during pregnancy, really, um, especially for our our little babies.
0: And for the the for the young neonatologists who are listening to us this is to me this was very reminiscent of the Barker hypothesis mm-hmm. right i mean the study of 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 the famine and the dutch famine and seeing that mothers who were starving because of the famine had babies with lower birth weights and this idea of the uh, the uh, infant origin of, of of adult childhood origins of of adult disease starts here and having a baby that has a higher BMI or higher fat composition has long-term ramification on the baby. And so to me, it was almost a mirror image of the Barker hypothesis on the other side, mm-hmm. which is interesting because the Barker hypothesis came, I don't know, I think he published that in the in the 50s, 60s, when mothers were were starving. And thankfully, now we live in an era where we have ample resources and ample amount of food. And now the, and now we're seeing the other side. So that, so I thought that was very poetic that in 2020, um, this is, this is now how we, how we look at it. How do we manage, um, the BMI of babies based on maternal diet during the pregnancy. And, and it was interesting to see that it holds true that if, if maternal intake is low, then you'll have lower birth weights and, and with higher fat intake, mm-hmm. especially during second and third trimester, you can have very high Z scores.
1: So something certainly for our OB colleagues, but I I think that we something still interesting for us. You know, we know that moms are going to have recurrent pregnancies uh, fre- frequently. That happens, <laughs> and so uh-huh. um, I think uh, there is sometimes some counseling that we can do in the, right. the NICU.
0: And what was interesting is that in the same journal, that's that's mm-hmm. why I think journals are doing a good job these mm-hmm. days of bundling articles. Mm-hmm. But there was this other article called um bo- uh, called Body adiposity and oral feeding outcomes in infants, a pilot study by Srikant Wisvanathan from um, the, the University of Central Florida, not too far from where we are. Mm-hmm. And basically what they looked at it was a retrospective study of infants who were born at more than 37 week uh, of, of infants who were born at more than 37 weeks uh, postmenstrual age. And they looked at um, the effect on tube feedings, compared to birth, gestation and matched infants on full oral feeds. Um, actually, you know what? Even though I want to, um, the author's affiliation said Orlando, but the study took place um, at a level four NICU at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. So I, I just want to clarify that because it could be a bit misleading. But basically what they looked at was what is the effect of the body composition of children uh, and their and the effect that it has on their ability to orally f- feed. Mm-hmm. And it was a small study. It was 16 cases versus 16 controls. Mm-hmm. But they do found that they did find that higher body adiposity worsens the feeding outcomes of, of babies. And so you see with two articles in the same journal, the direct link between maternal, maternal behavior during the pregnancy and direct medical effects after birth.
1: Yeah, when we actually have a third paper that speaks to that, um, but I thought I thought this pilot study was interesting because we've all had that experience, you know, a big a big baby, maybe gestational diabetes, maybe not, and you know they're a late preterm or they're approximating term gestation, and they just don't they just don't eat well. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I thought that this this was an interesting uh, place to look, especially. Um, in that late preterm, uh, group, you know, is it because, they're, is it because they're late preterm or is it because of other, other factors that, that we're learning about? Um, but I, I think we should speak about this, um, other study, um, that is similar, um, uh-huh. breastfeeding and growth trajectory from birth to five years among children exposed and unexposed to just gest- gestational diabetes, mellitus in utero uh lead author, uh Camille Dugas. Uh, so this looked at mother infant dyads from Quebec. Um they had 103 infants uh exposed to gestational diabetes and 63 children unexposed um to gestational diabetes and because of the um health record um they were able to follow uh weight um and weight um Increases in Z score trajectories over time. Um, Some of the children they were even able to follow up to five years. Um, And basically, what they found is that children who were exposed to gestational diabetes um, had higher weights uh, at six months, at four years, and at five years of age. They did adjust for things like maternal age, income, and education. And so that individual age. weight, actually that effect went away. But when they still looked at the Z-score trajectories, um, it was increased basically across childhood um, for the babies who had been exposed to gestational diabetes um, in utero.
0: Yeah. They they mentioned something like that, that at six months, I think the the, the curves separated a little bit. So they did see a significant difference. And then they sort of got closer to each other. And then it's at around four and five years that they really, you can see that, that sort of crossing that happens. And that was very impressive.
1: Yeah. Very interesting. And obviously we know that there are environmental factors, uh, right. Who that do predispose to gestational diabetes. Um, and that may continue even postpartum and in early childhood feeding. Um, but that's not true for all cases of gestational diabetes. So, uh, I, I thought, that was interesting um I think it's it's something that we have to be thinking about um especially given the degree of kind of childhood um obesity. I also like that they looked at um feeding so they looked at formula fed uh, infants and breast fed infants um and interestingly uh there was there were no differences. I thought there might be uh but there weren't. So I thought that was interesting uh, as well.
0: We're blazing through today. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, we got a lot of ground to
0: cover. Yeah, the journal no of Perinatology is always always packed with with interesting articles and and again, I think it's for the listeners i think sometimes what's interesting and where i think we can provide some benefits to the audience is that you may be able to read one paper but having the opportunity to go through the entire journal sometimes you can see the connection points between the different papers and and papers that may on their own ground um not provide may provide x amount of information in combination with other papers suddenly become so augmented and your understanding of a problem becomes so much more complex so that's that's actually really nice um did you have uh, a paper you wanted to go to next or or sh- should I go ahead?
1: Um, I mean we can mention this probiotic uh paper.
0: Go ahead. Uh, I will give you you can do us the honors. I will read the I will read I, the title. I think No 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 I want to read the title so that I can sound smart and um because I, I it you was this was sound smart. <laughs> no, but this one, hold on. Um where's um so this is um Again, in Journal of pednatology, the effects of probiotic supplementation on the gene expression of immune cell surface markers and levels of antibodies and pro-inflammatory cytokines in human milk. And this paper was from Veronique de Mer Mathieu from um, where were they from? Um, it looks like Boulder from City. from from Boulder, Boulder City, mm-hmm. um, in Nevada, USA. All right. So, so you tell us about this study.
1: <laughs> so. So I think that probiotics are a hot topic, um, peri natally. Let's just say, and 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 beyond. I, I think they're just a hot topic. So, what I found interesting about this study is that the probiotic in discussion was Greek yogurt. So, um, <laughs> I I thought it was worth mentioning. So, it was a very very small study. They looked at fifteen women who take quote unquote daily probiotics, but for eleven of the women, it was just. Greek yogurt, daily Greek right. yogurt intake. And then for, for the moms, Greek yogurt and some sort of uh, probiotic capsule, which we know there's a range of probiotic options and they offer a bunch of different things. So they're, they're not all equivalent. Um, and they looked, uh, they had their control group of 12 women who do not consume probiotics. Um, they, they looked at uh, some pretty, I think, uh, impressive markers. So they were even looking at CD28, CD19, and CD38, as well as concentrations of immunoglobulins and pro-inflammatory cytokines IL-6, TGF-alpha, and interferon gamma.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, so they looked at uh, very few characteristics. They're kind of baseline characteristics between the group of mothers. I would have liked to have a little bit more data about that. But from what they gave us, there was no major differences between uh, mommies. Uh, we didn't get a lot. We didn't get any baseline data on the infants, um, presumably. Mm-hmm. they Obviously, it's harder to to get that data. So we we didn't get that. And, you know, I don't know what to make of it, but they showed that CD8 CD28 was higher in the probiotic group. Um, There was not a change in immunoglobulins and that IL-6 was higher in the probiotic group. I would have liked to have seen some analysis, even though it's very, very small, but between the just yogurt group and the yogurt plus (laughs) probiotic group. I, I think that moms care about their intake. They care about their health. They will you know, they'll try to. And and in the NICU, how
0: many times have you been asked by a mother? What can I do?
1: Exactly. That's right. Right. And, and, and all the time is what I'm eating affecting the milk, especially when we say, oh, we have to fortify your milk or we have to, uh, we got to add more stuff. And the moms say, well, maybe my milk is deficient. And so, uh, you know, I, if we can give mommies things they can do. If we can work on lactoengineering milk, just like we talked about in the other study, um, I think it's something we we owe to these mommies who are spending time pumping to to give to get them more information and to this the paper, babies.
0: Mm-hmm. This baby, this paper has an important place, I think, in the current discussion. Number one, because the AAP came out recently with a recommendation mm-hmm. that that they do not recommend the use of probiotics mm-hmm. in preterm babies. So that was that was a big deal. Right. And there's a lot of politics around this, and many people have discussed it. I invite everybody listening to go read the statement from the AAP, looking at the current evidence, and and that's their recommendation. It was followed almost immediately in Jamapeds by a retort from mm-hmm. uh, from Abdul Razak, one of our friends from Twitter, who basically showed that with the evidence that we currently have right now, even if new trials were being published. It wouldn't change the outcome that we're seeing, which are positive in reducing NEC. Mm -hmm. So regardless of where you stand, you can clearly see that there's there's a big hot debate going on. And it's difficult for clinicians who are not involved in this debate to decide what to do. If you're a clinician, and I'm going to be I'm going to be speaking for myself here. I am not an expert on nutrition or probiotics, but it's difficult because you you take care of patients at the bedside and you say, well, the AAP is saying don't do it, and then I see pretty good evidence that it is beneficial. I get reports from other clinicians that are saying that it's beneficial. So what am I supposed to do? Mm-hmm. Well, this paper from the Journal of, P- of Perinatology this month says, well, you know, you could actually get the benefits from probiotics indirectly by just feeding it to the mother. Um, that's I think is an interesting is an interesting way of doing of looking at it and and still capitalizing on the effects of probiotics.
1: Yeah. And again, I don't know what to make with this data. You know, IL-6 was increased and that's a pro, you know, inflammatory marker. So I don't, you know, it'd be nice. It would, we don't have any neonatal outcome data, but, but the, um. CD28. Go ahead.
0: No, I was saying the CD28 and the, and the, and the, and the the, the cell, the T cell markers were interesting. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's what they looked at. How
0: does that help? Yeah, how does that help the babies fight off infections? I don't know.
1: Well, I just think it, it adds to, it adds to the debate. And if uh, if we we've looked at a lot of things, giving moms vitamin D, giving moms uh, the iron supplementation, you know, are there ways that we can avoid uh, having to give more things to neonates and give it through their mommies instead? So mm-hmm. the debate continues, I guess. Oh yeah.
0: <laughs> um. And we're still we're running out of time, and there's still so many more papers. It's okay. Um, what do you want to go through? To what, what what do you want to go to next?
1: Um, I thought uh, this was interesting. It's come up a few times, um, recently for us in in clinical practice. The comparison of standard versus high dose ibuprofen for the treatment of hemodynamically significant PDA in preterm infants.
0: Yeah, this was. Um, oh. Sorry, I I pulled up the wrong paper. But this was uh, published again this month. Last author is Suvik Mitra, which we mentioned in our interview with Michael Narvi, who is a super great follow on Twitter. He is a brilliant researcher. And I think you know when Michael Narvi was mentioning the fact that on Twitter he's able to interact with world-leading researchers, I think this is the type of people he was talking about. This is somebody who has been putting out great research on PDAs and who talks about this issue in a very clear manner. So it was a great paper. It looks at the effectiveness and safety of standard versus high dose ibuprofen for the treatment of hemodynamically significant PDA. And hemodynamically significant PDA was defined as moderate to large in size. And that was about 1.5 millimeters or greater with documentation of a, left, of a dilated left atrium. Mm-hmm. Um, and for that, for people who are interested, that means left atrium to aortic root ratio of 1.5 or greater. They retrospectively looked at preterm infants who either received a standard dose, 10.55 milligrams per kilo per day over three days, or a high dose where basically they would divide it into uh, different sort of segments. You would have day one to three, where they would get 10.55, but then day three to five, they would get 15, 7.5, 7.5, and then more than five days where they would get um, 20, 10, and 10. Um, And so they were able to look at 60 preterm infants, Uh, mean birth weight was 898 grams, mean gestational age is 26 weeks, and high dose ibuprofen was associated with a 21% absolute reduction in PDA ligation compared to a standard dose ibuprofen. And then, when they did their adjusted analysis, the receipt of standard dose ibuprofen um, independently predicted increased PDA ligation risk, mm-hmm. and there was no difference in a lot of the different outcomes that they looked at: oliguria, neck, BPD, and so on. Right. And so, their conclusion was that high dose ibuprofen may significantly reduce PDA ligations, and it, it was it was an interesting study. I mean, what do you make of it?
1: Well, and first they they did. They did have babies who got oral or IV, which I thought was interesting because that's been a part of the discussion in, in, in the past. And obviously, this is an ongoing debate in neonatology about the role of PDAs and closing PDAs. But if you're going to close a PDA, <laughs> um, then, you know, it's nice to know what you think will be most effective. And and I actually thought I, I want just to spend some time on their kind of dose escalation because that's uh-huh. not something that I have done admittedly in the, in the past, um, I've either thought, well, I'll use either low dose or high dose depending on a, an array of clinical scenarios.
0: Um, or sometimes we've done it where we do the standard dose, repeat an echo, and then follow up with a second dose after the echo shows that it may be a smaller PDA smaller.
1: Sure. And you know, their group had done some, some pharmacokinetic work, um, and, and, they were comfortable with this dose escalation, um, based on postnatal age, um, which I thought was, was interesting, especially because the one to three days is still, you know, 10, five, five, um, just like their, their standard dosing regimen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I would have liked to have seen a matched control group, um, just to have that data. Um, but I, I I liked that their kind of safety outcomes uh, were not worse in the, in the high dose group. And so I think that's what people are most concerned about.
0: And just to mention them, these were NEC, BPD, oliguria, ROP, GI bleeds, IVH, and all cause mortality. And they found no difference. So yeah.
1: Yeah. I think that was useful.
0: Talking about PDAs, my God, the PDA PDA is just, just, (laughs) we're not going to, we're not going to avoid the PDA, I guess, but There was another very interesting article um, that was published this month. And the last author is Afif el who we've we've mentioned before on the show, who is also a great Twitter follow. And the article is called Patent ductus arteriosus shunt elimination results in a reduction in adverse outcome, a post hoc analysis of the PDA RCT control. And this was a post hoc appraisal of the PDA RCT to assess the relationship between early PDA shunt elimination and chronic lung disease or death. And I guess the reason I wanna mention this article is that they looked at preterm infants less than 29 weeks who were at high risk of developing BPD or death. And they looked at if their PDA score was five or more um, obtained using echocardiography uh, between about one and a half days to two days of life, what would be the outcome of closure on their long-term outcome? And for the people who are not familiar, this group had published a paper in the journal of in the journal of pediatrics, which they refer to obviously in this article as the PDA RCT, where they looked at this PDA risk score, which is a pretty long formula. It has it's available there. It's gestation in weeks minus some factor plus the PDA diameter times another factor plus the left ventricular um, outflow tract in mL per kilo times another factor, and so on and so forth. And you can come up with a with a risk score that ranges. Uh, between zero and 13, right? Mm-hmm. And so they used this score to define five as a sort of cutoff and see if for patients who had a high PDA score, which was five and above, uh, compared to patients who had a low PDA score. And when, um, and so what they did is that they they looked at the babies who had successful intervention, intervention failure, and placebo. Mm-hmm. And then they had a third group which was defined as low-risk, which, um, which I forgot. Um, I forgot how they defined the low-risk group. Darn it.
1: Here. Uh, um, low-risk infants who were not enrolled into the trial but followed until discharge, the low-risk groups, basically a control
0: right. group. And so what they, um, what they found in their primary outcome was BPD or death, and then BPD and survivors and death. And what they found was um, BPD or death, their comparison was the rates of it were twenty nine um, percent is that twenty nine percent yes twenty nine percent in the intervention success group eighty five percent in the intervention failure group, sixty percent in the placebo, eight percent in the eight um, percent in the lowest group and so what what this demonstrates is that the score um, when they were able to successfully treat the PDA in these babies with the high score, they were able to significantly impact BPD or death and BPD and survivors. Just to give you that other data point, BPD and survivors went down from 54% in the placebo group to 14% in the intervention group that was successful. The intervention group that had a failure had a BPD rate of 75%, which is completely nuts. Yeah. Death, and finally death, placebo group was 13%. Intervention failure, 39%. Intervention success, 18%. Another one, not really significant, but 0.06 on the p-value. So, okay, I'm going to let you talk. Tell me what you think.
1: <laughs> well, I just don't know what to make about this intervention failure group. Um, we don't we don't know. Uh, were they smaller? Were they larger? All we know is that they weren't closed. And um, and uh, maybe that speaks to the clinical illness severity of these babies that we weren't able to close the PDA. I don't know. Um, but I thought that was particularly interesting. I'm I'm avoiding the answering your question about does interve- is intervention success uh, versus placebo. Um, this is, but this I'm interested is an, in a, with the intervention failure group.
0: This is another one where both articles actually com- complement each other. This PDA score is something I'm gonna to try to create a, an Excel calculator out of, and I wanna start using it because it, it's it's very comprehensive and the Journal of Pediatrics article is really good. And you can see that intervention success is important. Mm. And then it, to what length are you gonna to go to reach intervention success? Right. Because sometimes I think we give a single course of medication, we re-echo sometimes, and we say, oh, it's got smaller. All right, that right, we're gonna call it a day um, because we're not gonna pursue more aggressive treatment. But maybe we should. When you look at this data, where again these are, I'm going to preface this by saying this was a small study. Mm-hmm. Intervention success was 17 babies. Intervention failure was 13 babies. So they add up to about 30 babies for the intervention group. The placebo was 30 babies, and the low risk was 13 mm-hmm. uh, infants. So it's it's small numbers, but a reduction from. Um, 60% in the placebo groups, 85% in the intervention failure to 29% of BPD or death in the intervention success really makes you think about, I should really make an effort to close that PDA. It
1: should it should be noted that the groups were a little bit different though, you know, to yeah. the baseline characteristics. So the intervention success group, the babies were slightly older and they were bigger. Um, so it's just, and and same thing in the placebo group um so the intervention failure group had um, the smallest youngest babies and so it's just something the
0: intervention the intervention failure group you mean C-
1: correct uh their average gestation was 25 point3 uh weeks in the intervention success group 26.6 in the placebo group 26.3 and the intervention failure group um average uh birth weight was 695 versus nine 9- 932 in the intervention success group and the placebo group 969. So, you know, of note that that those babies were younger and smaller, um, and, True. and maybe, maybe both why they were harder to close, <laughs> um, and, and, you know, the outcomes were different. So.
0: Yeah. And, and that's, that goes again with some of the papers that we discussed two weeks ago, left. where we looked at at the fact that babies who are less than twenty six weeks really need to have their PDAs closed compared to babies who are a bit older, and that this non intervention on pda doesn't apply should not apply to every baby irrespective of their gestational age now I think you take that into account plus this PDA score plus the potential uh, use of high dose ibuprofen, it feels like we 're getting more and more tools to address this issue without having to do crazy things. You know what I'm saying? Not, not, not some very difficult procedure that you may not have the services available in your hospital. Um, so I think that that's interesting.
1: Well, and that, I mean, the question's changing, right? Not from, should we close the PDA or not, but uh, which PDA should we close?
0: Exactly. Exactly. And so that, that PDA score was interesting. The, I, the use of hydrocybuprofen is also something that can be potentially used. Um, very interesting stuff, you know?
1: Yeah, I agree. Um, speaking of outcomes Related to PDAs, (laughs) we do have a paper on neck, um, which we can at least touch on. It was an observational study um, that I I thought was at least interesting to note. So Temporal and Seasonal Variations in incidence of Stage 2 and 3 Neck, a 28-Year Epidemiologic Study from Tertiary NICUs in Connecticut um lead author darius javidi uh, Giv- um they looked at two uh units in connecticut between the years of 1990 and 2018 um they included uh, almost 17,000 infants in the analysis um and i'll give you their their Neck rates. So overall, about two percent of NICU admissions. Three percent in the low birth weight, so less than twenty five hundred gram infants. Six percent in the very low birth weight, less than fifteen hundred grams, and almost nine percent in the ELBW, so less than a thousand grams can see how that fits with your population. Um, SIP was diagnosed. uh, They also looked at SIP. So SIP was diagnosed in 0.6% of all NICU admissions in in their VLBWs 0.8 and their ELBWs 1.6. So not surprisingly, uh, which we we kind of know about NECK, significantly associated with lower birth weight and lower gestational age at birth. SIP was more common in infants of lower birth weights and gestational age at birth, um, and they found that SIP seen more common in their male group, um, and both neck and SIP significantly higher in multiple births um, in black infants on a univariate analysis, but after adjusting for birth weight and gestational age. Um, this was not seen in neck, but um, there was still an association uh, with multiple births in uh, Black race babies after adjusting for birth weight and gestational age at birth. So that's just some of their baseline um, data. But what was, was interesting is that their, their incidence of neck overall had not uh, changed significantly um, and that they found that birth months birth in April and May uh, were independently associated with stage two or three neck uh, even after adjusting for um, a lot of confounding factors and that they saw this kind of uh, multimodal distribution uh, with spikes every 10 years. Um, So, you know, the, the team's hypothesis is that, you know, could this be related to some sort of environmental factors Uh, This is different than the South Korea paper that showed a significant decrease in neck over uh, their 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 time frame. What did you think?
0: I I thought that was interesting. I mean, this in the discussion they do go into details Mm -hmm. about these bimodal relationship between the incidence of neck and that technically there should be some hot seasons for neck, like May, June, and October, November. Mm -hmm. And I have no idea if this is if this is. Evidence that is true or not, but we are in June, That's right. and <laughs> and I'm going to make sure. You wonder. <laughs> and uh, so y- y- I'm I'm wondering if this is uh, I'm I'm wa- I, I don't know I don't know what to make of this, and I'm sh- I am sure somehow intrinsically I am sure that there's something that temporal association between atmospheric pressures. There must be some role, environmental role that always plays a role is are they able to pick up on that signal in the study and act conclusively say that may june and october november are the hot season i don't know i think it's just interesting to have a paper that uh, highlights those two uh, times of the year as potential uh, high risk for neck
1: yeah something to, something to think about and you know it's it's always good to have uh, data that confirms you know things we already know, right? We know it's the smallest babies, the lowest gestational age, and we know that there are some um, racial disparities um, in in the NICU, um, and and it it holds true for neck, and that's something that we just can't can't ignore.
0: So, and and just to, so so people know, I mean, this was a twenty eight year retrospective mm-hmm. study, so so the idea that there's a cyclicity to every 10 years, there may be a hot season. It's difficult to get from this study because they only cover two of those time spans, but on a month to month basis, I mean, they had, they had a significant Mm -hmm. number of data. So something, something that, that was interesting for Mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: Well, we have a lot more papers still in (laughs) the journal of perinatology. Um, uh, do you want to review some of those or? I
0: have two papers that I want to mention. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them is, is more of a shout out to our friends at the BPD collaborative. Mm. Um, it's called invasive mechanical ventilation at 36 weeks postmenstrual age, adverse outcome with a comparison of recent definitions of bronchopulmonary dysplasia. Melenka Cueva-Guaman uh, is the lead author. Leif Nillen is the senior author. And basically they looked at the dependence on mechanical ventilation, both invasive and non-invasive at 36 weeks. And they looked at how does that translate into higher risk for complications and mortality um, beyond that point. And obviously, invasive mechanical ventilation was worse, but they also looked at the different definitions of BPD and saw how they were able to identify the highest group uh the highest risk population with these new definitions which we've spoken about i think on the first episode mm-hmm. uh, about a paper that I had looked at that as well and they were able to show that obviously the jensen and 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 the, or the uh neonatal research network definition was a bit better in detecting these grade three patients and even the NICHD definition from 2016 did a better job than the typical one of how much oxygen are you want at 36 weeks mm-hmm. so i thought that was interesting and uh, i think the bpd collaborative does tremendous work and and it's i was i just wanted to recognize them the other paper on, on respiratory outcomes that I was interested in was this one called High CPAP versus NIPPV in Preterm Neonates, a Physiological crosso- Crossover Study. Uh, first author is Amit Mukherjee and last author is Jennifer Beck from Ontario, Canada, I think. From Canada, from McMaster University. Um, what, what was interesting was they were trying to... so So they took... Basically, the gist of it is that they had babies who were on nasal CPAP, babies who were on an IPPV, and they switched them. They switched the babies who were on IPPV to high CPAP and babies who were on CPAP to an IPPV and switched them back and basically looked at the, um, at the outcomes. So babies who were either what, what they called high CPAP was a peep of nine to 14 and other babies who were on an IPPV. And they had to meet, obviously, they had to be, they had strict criteria, they had to be more than two weeks old, they had to be at least 28 weeks, they had to be between one and 2.5 kilos, they had to be on less than 60%. And obviously, they had to have uh, parental consent. And what they looked at was when they swapped those patients from NIPPV to CPAP, they did um, echocardiograms, and they looked at uh, right ventricular uh, outflow and left ventricular outflow, and they found that there was no difference. And so sometimes what, uh, what, what was very interesting is that sometimes we can leave babies on NIPPV and a lot of that pressure can be, especially the mean airway pressure maybe a bit higher and they may get a lot of, mm-hmm. of uh, transmitted pressure to the abdomen and that may impact feeds and so on. And so you see that by actually not being so peep adverse and using CPAP to levels of 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 even, yeah. you're not really going to impact ne- negatively the uh, outflow tract of the heart. Obviously, um we have to be cautious with this data because it's small. It involved only 15 subjects. But I think this is very valuable data because this is a question you always have about how high can I go on the CPAP? And and I thought that was I thought that was very interesting that they they were able to look at that. They um they even looked at, you know, the using uh using Nava catheters, looking at EDIs, mm-hmm. and they found no difference in terms of the peak EDIs versus the minimal EDIs between uh, NIPPV and CPAP. So I really like that paper. I tend to do that sometimes even as a trial basis on the, a lot of the babies, mm-hmm. just try them on higher CPAP to take them off an IMV. And I found that to be quite successful. So I'm happy to see that some people are also publishing on that topic.
1: Yeah. And you know we love, we like Nava. So it was nice to see how they use the the catheter feedback, you know, feed out data um to 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 kind of verify what they were finding in the in the trial. But for me, this is a a reminder that I, I I could probably use higher peeps <laughs> than, I, than I have been comfortable with in the past. So,
0: um, And this was something that Dr. Shulman at, at Joe DiMaggio always always sort of mentioned, right? Even if you're t- taking a baby off Nava to straight CPAP, leave the catheter in, see what your EDIs are doing, see how the work, get a sense of their work of breathing on CPAP to make yeah. clinical decisions as to how they're tolerating that. So, so so I think that was really good. Yeah,
1: a little more uh, objective data. So very neat. Um. I I mean, I think we should mention that there was a lot of um, kind of observational studies uh, survey data about how the uh, COVID-19 pandemic has impacted uh, NICU care, um, NICU stays, parental engagement. Um, I'm not sure that we'll have the time to run through all of them, but I think um, certainly there are some papers uh, there to see uh, for review, um, on that yeah. topic.
0: I think it was, it was important to mark the moment of mm-hmm. saying, this is, we went through something traumatic and, and I think, is this something that we're going to have to deal with again? Hopefully not, but we're going to need to better prepare our staff for these types of events, obviously.
1: Well, and I do think for the NICU specifically, some of the papers, um, discussed, uh, parental, um, Obviously visitation and changes in things like parental handling of babies, holding kangaroo care, things like that and um I think we have yet to see what impact that will have developmentally on on some of this kind of cohort of of babies this this year, but uh, hopefully hopefully we'll be able to relax some of those restrictions in the coming
0: I wanted to um. I wanted to. Uh, we spoke about this, but I wanted to maybe highlight a little bit some of the of the feedback that we're getting for the podcast, and really, um, and just you know, highlight some of the comments we're getting. And um, is it is it okay with you if we go through at least one of the ones that we received on Apple Podcast?
1: Is it okay with you if you you tell us that people have enjoyed the podcast? No, please go.
0: <laughs> I want to believe that if we get negative feedback, we'll we'll read them out on the air. Yeah, we'll also. Do it. But but please don't send us negative <laughs> feedback. <laughs> this is from uh, ERH3, I think. I'm not exactly sure. And, um, and this is a comment that was left a few days ago saying, thanks to the incubator for a great interview with Dr. Narvi. I think Twitter and podcasts will make neonatologists better physicians. I look forward to more episodes. So I think that was really nice because when the audience is able to appreciate some of the work we're doing specifically when it comes to connecting different worlds of neonatology, it, it, it feels like we're being validated because uh, that was the whole point of Michael's interview, really to communicate the need for social media and and connections between the people within the community. So thank you.
1: But yeah, we, we appreciate all the feedback. Uh, it makes us want to keep Keep doing what we're doing, so we appreciate it. We're happy to receive constructive criticism as well, <laughs> and we want to make we want to keep making this better for you. So, just you know, give us give us that feedback so we can keep improving.
0: Yeah, and and we're going to continue reviewing the journals that we're reviewing. I also wanted to mention on the air the fact that we're not really reviewing articles from the archives of Disease and Childhood, and this is a conscious decision because they have their own podcast where they talk about some of the highlights of their of their articles. And so we, uh, I, I, highly recommend that you follow the ADC podcast for uh, a summary of those, of those articles. Uh, but yeah, leave us some feedback. Tell us what you want to hear about. And we have some great episodes. Um, I think the f- next week we have Betsy, um, Pilon, who is, uh, who is the, uh, um, executive co-founder of the hope for HIE foundation in Michigan. And, and she has a lot of interesting things to talk to us about mm-hmm. um, and her, her path and her experience with, with uh, HIE. So uh, stay tuned for that one.
1: I guess that's all we have time for.
0: Thank you, Daphna. <laughs> I'll see you around soon enough.
1: All right. Everybody have a Thank good one. You. Be well.
0: Thank you. See you next week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the incubator. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at podcast. Personally, I am on Twitter at drnikkupodcast, spelled D-R-N-I-C-U, and Daphna is at dr Dafna md. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.